This week on The Backdrop, we're airing out God's dirty laundry, so to speak. Hi, everybody. Curtis here. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Backdrop, where we are going to be looking at some of the interesting themes and details from chapters 11 to 14 of Jeremiah, including, yes, God's dirty linens. But before we get to that, there's something we need to remind ourselves of about what God is up to in the world as a whole, and more particularly, in and through the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 13, 11, God says, Because as a garment sticks to someone's waist, So I made Israel's entire household and Judah's entire household stick to me, Yahweh's words, to be for me a people, a name, praise, and splendor, but they didn't listen. We'll get to that linen garment performance art in a minute, but for now, I want to focus in on God's stated purpose for having chosen Israel in the first place. They are to be a people for God, but not just for the sake of having a people, in order to make a name for God, bringing God praise and splendor or glory. This is Jeremiah echoing words like we find in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verses 18 and 19. And Yahweh has proclaimed you today to be to God a treasured people, as God has spoken to you, and to keep all God's commands and to set you high above all the nations that God made for praise and for acclaim and for glory and for you to be a holy people to Yahweh your God. So from the beginning of Israel as a people, they are intended not just for God's relational pleasure, but to bring glory to God. And the church has rightly adopted this for ourselves as well as our purpose too. In fact, some denominations define the whole purpose of humanity as being to love God and glorify God forever. Now, this is simultaneously true, it's all throughout the Bible as we've seen, and a bit misleading, because growing up at least, when I thought about this idea, how we were supposed to glorify God or bring glory to God, I think I imagined people like singing worship songs to God forever and ever in heaven or something, as if God were some sort of cosmic glory hound needing eternal ego stroking. We don't usually look kindly on people who just want other people to sing their praises all the time. And that's justified by some as being okay for God as saying, well, with humans, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to want people to sing our praises forever because we don't deserve it. But with God, it's okay because God actually deserves it, which is true as far as it goes. But that's not really what this is saying, I don't think. And to understand that, we need to go back to the end of chapter 12, the passage that Meredith spoke about this weekend, which gives another lens through which to see God's actions in the world. This passage helps us to see why God's glory matters, and it isn't God's ego. So chapter 12 of Jeremiah, verse 14 and the verses after it say this, Yahweh has said this about all my evil neighbors who touched the possession that I gave to my people Israel. In other words, about all the surrounding nations around Israel. Here am I. I'm going to uproot them from on their land. And Judah's household I will uproot from their midst. But after I have uprooted them, I will again show compassion to them and bring them back. And remember, we're still talking about the other nations here. Each to his own possession, each to his country. 
if they really learn the ways of my people, swearing by my name as Yahweh lives, as they taught my people to swear by the Baals, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. God's ultimate goal is a reversal, that Israel would be the one teaching the other nations to swear by the name, that is to put their trust in, Israel's God, instead of other nations teaching Israel to swear by their gods. God's ultimate goal has always been this. It's just that Israel keeps getting it backwards. This is the whole purpose of Israel, to be a holy people set apart from the ways of the other nations around them because that's the way they can show the other nations an alternative way, a way that relies on trust in Yahweh. And then after those verses comes the passage about linen garments in chapter 13. Jeremiah is told to get a linen garment and wear it around, and then he's told to take that garment and hide it in a crevice near a river, in a place that sounds a lot like Euphrates, but probably refers to a town called Parath near Anatot, where Jeremiah is from, and it's spelled almost the same as the name of the river Euphrates in Hebrew. So it's basically standing in for the river in this performance art that Jeremiah is doing. So then Jeremiah is to go back many years later to find that garment and unsurprisingly finds that it was destroyed. It's useless. And God says, you, Israel, are also useless like this garment. And so you are going to be destroyed like this garment. And I'm going to hide you by the Euphrates, meaning the river in Babylon. So it's another strange performance art piece from the prophets to go along with Isaiah walking around naked and Ezekiel eating scrolls. And as with any good performance art, there's deeper meaning here if we choose to look for it. Many of the scholars I read on this passage, because of the emphasis on the garment clinging tightly to God, interpret this to be some sort of linen underwear. And it might be that. It's not clear what type of garment we're talking about here. But I am pretty convinced by the argument that Christopher Wright makes in his commentary on Jeremiah. Wright points out that in the verse we looked at earlier, verse 11, God says that this underwear is supposed to bring the wearer glory and honor. And it doesn't make much sense for God to talk about a pair of underwear bringing their wearer glory and honor, unless it's one heck of a pair of spanks, I guess. It makes far more sense for this to have been an outer garment, one that people would see and ooh and ah over. It's not much of an object lesson for Jeremiah to go around saying, hey, you all remember that great pair of underwear I was wearing a few years back? No? Well, uh, it was pretty great. So Wright argues that this probably ought to be read as an outer garment, a praiseworthy one. And this then makes sense of why this story about underwear or linen garments or whatever appears where it does, right after the passage we just read from chapter 12 about the nations coming back to God through the witness of Israel. The garment Jeremiah got was one that brought him praise and glory, but then it got destroyed and it wasn't worth anything. Israel is intended to be God's garment, clinging close to God and then bringing God praise and glory. But instead, it brought God only shame. And so Israel is going to be hidden by the banks of the Euphrates in exile. Now here's the key to answering our earlier question. What is the type of praise and glory that Israel is supposed to bring to God? The type that makes the surrounding nations sit up and take notice to say, hey, check out that God. 
We are intended to bring praise and glory to God, not because God is a glory hound, but because that's the means by which other people will notice how beautiful God is and will want to be closer to God too. That is God's ultimate purpose for Israel and for the church. It is the end of all God's work in the world that more and more people would come to see the glory and beauty and majesty of God, not just for the sake of telling God how wonderful God is, but so that they would come back home to God's family. This little story about dirty laundry ends in a funny way, verses 12 and 13. So you're to speak this message to them. Something profound is coming. Yahweh, the God of Israel, says this, every bottle should be full of wine. And they'll say to you, don't we know very well that every bottle should be full of wine? And you're to say to them, Yahweh has said this, here am I, I am going to fill all the residents of this country, the kings who sit on David's behalf on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all Jerusalem's residents with drunkenness. So we've gone from dirty linen to full wine bottles. God gives Jeremiah a message that is completely obvious to everyone. Yeah, of course a wine bottle is intended to be filled with wine. Thanks for the insight, Jeremiah. But God takes this message forward in verse 13 and on as a message of judgment that is to come. But we should also look backwards at the verse right before it, the one we've mentioned a few times now, verse 11, where God talks about how Israel is supposed to be God's chosen people so as to bring God praise and glory. So if we put that verse together with verse 12, What God is saying is, you know how obvious it is that a wine bottle should be used for its main purpose? Well, it should be just as obvious that Israel should fulfill its main purpose of bringing glory to God amongst the nations. And yet they don't seem to be doing that. It's God saying, hey, let's go back to basics here. You all need to actually do the thing you were intended to do, just like a wine bottle holds wine. When I look at the church today, I see far more examples of it bringing shame to God's name, like a dirty linen garment filled with holes. Then I see examples of people gazing at wonder and awe at how beautiful our God is as seen through the church. Anna last week told a story about that, actually, of her own experience seeing a more beautiful God through the church that she had come to visit and the way that church had treated her. The power of this reality, which Jeremiah illustrated with dirty laundry, is just as much true today. How are we doing at glorifying God? Now, before we get into the other main theme that appears in this section of Jeremiah, I just wanted to highlight one interesting verse. Chapter 12, verse 4. How long will the country mourn, the grass and all the fields wither, through the evil of the people who live in it, animals and birds come to an end? Because people say, he doesn't look at our future. There's a consistent theme in Jeremiah that isn't ever really developed, but it shows up now and then. And I'm not sure we will ever get to it as part of a weekend service for that reason, that it's not more than a verse here and there. We might, who knows. But it's in this verse. The reality that there is a connection between the people having walked away from God and the health of creation. A connection between the evil of the people, as this verse says, and ecology. In Jeremiah's day, the people put their trust in the storm gods of the other nations, and so God withholds rain so as to wake them up to the powerlessness of those gods and call them back to Yahweh. But that lack of rain doesn't just affect the people, of course. 
It affects all of creation, as plants don't grow and animals suffer. Today, we have our own ways that our idolatry has contributed to the destruction of creation, of course. The idols change, but the result is the same. As Paul says, creation groans, longing for the time when God would bring redemption, when people would take up their God-given responsibility to care for God's good creation. Jeremiah rightly grieves the effect that people have on creation. And I think we in the church could as well. But finally today, I want to look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, where Jeremiah brings up an issue that we will talk more about in a couple of weeks, and that is the cost to those who do the work of the prophet. In the end of chapter 11, Jeremiah complains about the resistance that he has received, not just from kings, not just from strangers, but from the people in his own family. I'd been like a docile lamb led to the slaughter, he says, and quotes his enemies as saying, Let's cut him off from the land of the living so that his name isn't mentioned anymore. And who are these people who are plotting to take Jeremiah's life? Verse 21, Yahweh has said this about the people of Anatot who are seeking your life. If we remember from the first chapter, Anatot is the town Jeremiah lives. It is the place Jeremiah's family is from. If you've read much in the New Testament, you may hear some resonance in this story of Jeremiah's resistance in his hometown with the resistance Jesus finds in his own. It's stories like Jeremiah's that make Jesus say that a prophet is never welcome in their hometown after the people of Nazareth try to stone him. And the reasons for the resistance is the same in both cases. Both Jeremiah and Jesus have their lives threatened not simply because they represent God, but because they represent God to a society that claims to follow God, but has in fact walked away. The idolatry of the people has resulted in structures of systemic injustice, a status quo that works for the powerful and oppresses the poor. Both Jesus and Jeremiah threaten that status quo, and that simply cannot be allowed. That's the underlying reality here. But at the same time, in both cases, the main resistance is from other people who are supposed to be part of the people of God. And both meet added resistance after they proclaim judgment on the temple. It's a family of priests who threaten Jeremiah's life, not the Babylonians. It's likely that for some people, Jeremiah attacking the temple, which is basically the same as attacking the foundations of the nation itself, would be seen as blasphemous, just like Jesus's actions were seen as blasphemous. And so in the same way, both would be seen as false prophets who could not possibly be from God because they were contradicting the foundational treasured beliefs of God's people. And Deuteronomy 13 lays out what to do with false prophets, kill them before they can lead the people astray. Both Jesus and Jeremiah meet resistance from people who are convinced that they cannot be from God because their message is contrary to what they thought a message from God could possibly be. But they were wrong, partially because as we've seen in previous weeks as we work through Jeremiah, they had come to trust not in God's self, but in the religious symbols and rituals and practices that had been intended to point to God, but instead had become an end to themselves. But they were also wrong because their self-interest blinded them to what God was doing. Jeremiah's calls to reform the religious practices of Judah, to cut out the idolatry and injustice, would have directly impacted the livelihood of a town of priests. Priests who weren't at the temple in Jerusalem 
and so may have tried to justify their existence by being priestly in some less Yahweh-focused ways, shall we say, by facilitating other sorts of religious rituals that pointed the people towards other gods. If people listened to Jeremiah, it might affect their bank accounts, not just their national identity, and both together meant violent resistance. I wonder if we could think of any equivalence today to the self-professed people of God putting their own self-interest and national identity ahead of allegiance to God. Well, I want to be clear. Patriotism is not sinful. But when it causes us to miss what God is doing, like it has done, let's remember, in countless nations for thousands of years, it can result in God's people actively, violently opposing God. We would do well to reflect on that. As a church, in this season of upheaval and change, what might God be doing that we should listen to? Especially when the thing God is doing might challenge our nation or might harm our bank accounts. Those, as we see in the pages of scripture and the pages of history, are the hardest messages to hear. But this should also serve as a different sort of warning to us. The warning of the cost we might pay, even, maybe especially, with our own family, when we turn from self-interest or nationalism and return to God. Putting trust in God can be, should be, is good news, but there are those who don't want a return. They want the status quo, and they are going to reject both the message of repentance and the messenger. And Jeremiah brings the pain and that rejection to God in this chapter, and it's interesting what God says back. First, in chapter 11, verse 22 and 23, he says that judgment is coming to those people who reject a return to God. He is going to do something about it. But then Jeremiah complains further about how people who are not faithful to God seem to be succeeding, how it isn't fair that here he is trying to be faithful to God and all he gets is pain. And he looks at these others who follow their own self-interest and they're living well. God doesn't really answer the why of this question, except in effect to say, yes, this is how the world is. And yes, I am going to do something about it. But then God says one more thing in chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. I have discarded my household. I have deserted my own people. I have given my dearly beloved into the hands of her enemies. My own people have become to me like a lion in the forest. She's given voice against me. Therefore, I have repudiated her. My own people are a bird of prey, a hyena. God is saying, me too. Jeremiah, I know the pain of having to abandon my people, my family. I know the pain of being cast out from the ones who should love me the most. My own people are tearing me apart like a bird of prey or a lion or a hyena. God, we must always remember, knows intimately the pain of rejection and abandonment. The road to God is the road to life, but it is not pain-free. And we know that because it was not pain-free for God, not in the days of Jeremiah, not in the days of Jesus, and I imagine not in our days either. This is maybe the hardest part of trusting God for many, that the pain we experience is not evidence that God can't be trusted, but instead life is still coming, is still there, even when it doesn't seem that way. 
That's part of why we are spending so much time in Jeremiah, because that's the same lesson Jeremiah had to learn and that the people in exile had to learn, that God can still be trusted even in the dark places. Thanks for listening to The Backdrop this week. We hope you will join us this Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific time on Zoom, when we will be focusing on Jeremiah chapter 17 and asking the question that has been swirling throughout this entire book, really, where do we put our trust? A link will be on our website, PomonaValleyChurch.org. And until then, have a great week. Bye.